I'm James Milley. And I'm Alex Mito. And this is The Artist Business Plan, your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs, hosted by Superfine Art Fair. Hello, business artists and art entrepreneurs. Welcome back to The Artist Business Plan. My name is James Milley. I'm the managing partner and co-founder of Superfine Art Fair, the most widespread art fair for artists in the United States. As you know, we are a business resource for all things art, artists, and marketing art. We are here today with Elisa Valenti, an unapologetically body-positive and contemporary figurative artist living and working in Queens, New York. The varying flesh tones used in her signature variation on cubism make her full-figured woman come to life on canvas. Each figure seems as if it could be any woman, and indeed, many of her viewers see themselves in her work. Alisa is a self-taught painter. She studied fine arts and art history at the High School of Art and Design and holds her doctorate of pharmacy from St. John's University. Uh, She has been featured by Create Magazine, Canvas and Crumpets, and Oprah Complex, and she has previously exhibited with Superfine Art Fair in New York, no doubt. Welcome to the show, Alisa. Hello, it's so good to be here. Now, before we get started, Elisa, uh, I want to ask you something just to help our audience get to know the real Elisa, so to speak. What is the earliest memory that you have of art? And did you realize then that you'd be dedicating your life to art? My earliest memories, I was always drawing. I always had pencils and pens and Um, My father would take us to this little department store called Lewis's every week to buy whatever he needed. And I would never leave without a coloring book and crayon. So I always wanted to draw and paint. And as I got a little older, maybe when I was, I don't know, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, I was I would draw like my family's portraits and everybody would say like they were uncanny to the I always got like the person's personality, even if like my technical skills weren't kind of there yet. One memory that I have that kind of made me realize that I had some kind of talent, I went to a elementary school. In the first grade, I drew a picture of the cover of um, Clifford, the big red dog. I didn't have any memory of it until the sixth grade when I went back to that teacher to visit. And she kept these like folders of each of her classes. She had the folder of my year of first grade. So I was going through it and I saw the picture of the Clifford, the red, big red dog like cover. And I was like, wow, I was like, did I really draw that? And she was like, yeah, you I, it was like, it like slapped me in the face that I was like, holy crap. Like I had a lot of talent, like for a first grader um, that was able to like copy it exactly. It looked like the cover, something doing creative things has always been part of my personality, whether it's baking or setting tables or decorating or doing the tree. I've always been inclined to like creating beauty around me. Like I always want things to be beautiful around me. And so in junior high school, I decided, I told my parents that I wanted to go to school in Manhattan and I wanted to go to art school. But I never had the intention of becoming a professional artist. I remember telling my mom, like, I just want to get really talented. I want to just learn how to be a great artist. Like, I just want to learn. And I kind of wanted to be enveloped and like submerged in the art world. And I loved my high school years. My high school years, I went to the High School of Art and Design I don't have bad memories of high school. I just loved it. it is a, it's a school that you have to take a test to get into. So it's kind of like LaGuardia, the high school of art and design, fashion industries, like you take an exam to enter and I was accepted and it was awesome. Like what made it a fancier art school was that we had like extra periods of art 
and they took out other stuff, but we still did our regular, you know, courses that every high schooler does. But like everything was focused on art. Like you walked into the school and there was a huge gallery and the gallery had all the students artwork in it. And there was a floor that was dedicated to like the art classes. And, you know, there was students just drawing everywhere. And like, there was always something where to go and something to do. And the teachers chose you for these programs around the city. I was chosen for a bunch of stuff. So I did um, the Cooper Union uh, drawing intensive for one summer. Um, that was a really amazing experience. I did Parsons School of Design. They had a, a program for high schoolers, the art directors club, like two students from every art school in Manhattan got to go. So like, I've always been obsessed with art and going to the museum and painting and drawing. And I never thought of it as work. And then like the decision had to happen of what I was going to do with my future. So in high school, I took fine arts and art history just because I wanted to learn but they have other things that you can learn. They have a lot of industrial design and fashion and architecture and graphic design, but I never thought of capitalizing on the talent. I just, my goal in high school was to just learn and be good at what I did and enjoy it. And so I worked in a pharmacy when I was in high school and, you know, I, I worked there for a few years and then I had a mentor and although everybody appreciated my art, she was very gung-ho that she was like, oh, you, you're really good at in the pharmacy world. Like you should go and become a pharmacist. And my brother-in-law was a pharmacist. And it was just kind of like the next step of like, what are you going to do with your career? And my sister would say, no, don't turn something that you love into work. She was like, otherwise you're going to end up hating it. She was like, keep that for your passion and like, you know, have a stable career and you know, so my parents never forced me to do anything like against my will. They were just like, whatever you want to do that makes you happy, do it. But just be smart about whatever decisions you make. Choose something that in, in a recession, you'll be safe or choose a job that, you know, makes you an income that allows you to do your passions. You know, that was really their push. You know, my parents are immigrants and my sisters, you know, immigrant children have like this pressure on them that we realize the sacrifice our parents make for us. And so our decisions always have that on our back. Like you don't want to like waste the sacrifice that your parents made. You know, like my parents know what it was like to be poor and to sacrifice and to suffer and to have to take jobs they didn't want to take because they had to. And so you make decisions that are like, you know, quote unquote, you don't see me, I'm making little air quotes, but you know, <laughs> smart decisions. You know, my mother worked in the fashion industry and what she said to me was, you can do any job you want, just don't go into fashion because it's cutthroat and like, I'm in that world and I don't want you in that world. So she was like, you can do anything. You know, I took my sister's advice and I went to pharmacy school and I became like the best pharmacist that I could be. And I moved up in the ranks and I literally started in the pharmacy as the cashier. I was the girl in the front that stocked the shelves. I was 15. I swept the floors. I used to decorate the windows. That was like my favorite. I would do all the holiday windows I was always finding outlets to be creative in everything that I did. And then Gloria was like, you're coming to the back. And that was like the scariest day of my life. I was like, what do you mean I'm coming to the back? I was like, Alex, the pharmacist is so scary. Like, I can't go back there. And she forced me to count the pills one day. She was like, you're going to count the pills. And so I did. And I worked my way up and I became um, an adjunct professor for St. John's and I proctored the, the board for St. John's and I teach classes and compounding and I taught CEs and I became like an expert in my field. And I became a pharmacy director for this big, huge company that I built from scratch. I used to sit in board meetings 
and literally fantasize about painting. Like I, I kid you not, like I, it was a very tumultuous situation with like the other people who were in charge of the business and we were always fighting. And I, I literally made myself sick. Like I, I had gastric ulcers that I took myself to the emergency room in the middle of the night, like, because I was in so much pain, my hair was falling out. It was just like so stressful, but also I, I liked the stress cause I was successful. But then something happened that I was just, I don't know, I just kept thinking about painting. I just kept thinking about it. And after my mom passed away, like two years later, I had like a therapist who helped me through grief, like grieve through her process. And in so many of our conversations, I would tell him, tell him about painting. There came a day where he was like, Elisa, why, why aren't you painting? And I had like a block, like there was some block that was keeping me from painting. And he thought I was like, I had this perfectionist problem that like I wouldn't finish my paintings because I was afraid they would fail. So I would leave them unfinished. And so he forced me to paint the ugliest painting that I can paint. That was my homework. He was like, go ugly. Like, what is your definition of ugly? So as the type A personality that I am, I went home and started like planning the ugliest painting. I was like, well, what can be the, well, well if I'm going to make the ugliest painting, I have to make the ugliest painting that I can absolutely make. I fail at making the ugliest painting. The best ugly painting. The best <laughs> ugliest painting. And so I made this ugly painting and the resulting feelings that came from this ugly painting were anger. And we spoke about this and I told him, I was like, I don't know. I felt so angry, like making this ugly painting. From there, like, you know, I would make some paintings for myself while I was still working. And I don't know, in 2018, like the clouds opened and something happened. And I don't know, like the situation led to me resigning from my position. One of my students ended up taking my position. I thought that I was very proud about that. I just started painting like a crazy woman with no intention. I did not sit down and say, I'm going to paint. And like, I'm going to sell my work. Like I just started painting real raw, just emotions. Like I just went in my basement and every single day, probably for like 10 to 12 hours, I would just paint and paint and paint. And like all this stuff just came out. Everything just led to it. I had a conversation with you. That conversation was meant to happen a year later. It's very strange. Like Gigi Chen, who's the artist who was showed with me in May of 2019, I went to grade school with her. We went to the same elementary school. And something, I don't know, like, uh, what was it? It was like April of 2019. Something made me think of her because I was like, who are all the artists that I know? Like, who went to art school? Because I was like, I want to be around them. Like, how can I talk to them? And like, I don't know, I, I looked her up on Instagram. I saw her and I was like, oh my God, Gigi. And I saw she was going to be showing at Superfine. So I texted her and she was like, Elisa, I'll get you a ticket. Like, come to Superfine. She's like, I can't wait to see you. And I was like, that's so cool. And then, of course, your phone is listening to you. So I was scrolling through and I got a sponsored <laughs> ad for Superfine. And I was like, oh, my God, look, a, a sponsored ad. I was like, I'm going to apply and I'm going to give myself a year. I was like, in 2020, I'm going to, like, make the most perfect presentation and my perfect presentation, I will show it to someone. And I don't know, maybe I can get accepted to super fine. I, I applied. And like the next day you called me and I'm, and you're like, hi, this is James. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, we have like one spot available. Like, do you want to comment? And like at, at that moment, I was like, Wait a minute. Like my mind was blown. I was like, James, you're, you're t throwing off my timeline. Like my timeline <laughs> next year. Like, this is weird. Like you were like, I have this huge booth. Like you think you can like do something. And, um, I had all my work that I had made 
that wasn't really supposed to be what was going to show. It was kind of, I was going to plan something better. And then I showed my work and like from there, it was like the rest was history. Like everything just happens like from there. So it was, it's a very serendipitous story how like all the pieces kind of fall together. I don't think that this is a story that happens to everybody. And um, here we are now. Wow. That's incredible. And I have a a few other questions that we're going to get to that sort of stem from this moment that you're talking about where everything came into one moment and worked out. But that's incredible that you had this experience with art. Like it sounds like art was so much of your life was about it uh, and just being creative and then making your way back to that. Like even if you had this long detour with another career, that's incredible that you made your way back to this thing that you oh, loved and, and your body was responding to it. You're like, I, I got to paint. I don't regret anything that I ever done. Like I'm extremely proud that I have my doctorate and all of the years of helping people, you know, all the work that I did, how many students that I helped and I don't regret it. And I don't believe that I would have been as happy or successful if I started then. Like I think my career was supposed to happen this way. And also building a pharmacy and working in a very cutthroat environment prepared me for business. I would have never grown the thick skin that you need, the confidence that you need to do this without the trials and tribulations that led me here. So I don't regret what I have done. I'm happy that like, this is my, my second turning, like everything that happens to us in our lives is meant to happen. I believe even the bad stuff, like our, our society doesn't value like children. I don't believe, I think that we think they don't know anything, but children are really smart and children, when you're born, I believe you're born with your gifts. You might not establish them until much later. I'm, I'm a late bloomer. I didn't know what, where, what I should have been doing for a long time, but like, listen to the voice of the child. Like the, the voice of the child for me was like, I should have been, I wanted to be creative, but society tells you otherwise that you should do this and you should do that. And, you know, nothing bad happened to me by making those choices. But the point of me saying this is that just listen to the child because the child is really wise and will lead you in the right direction. I love that. Listen to the child. I really like what you said before about how this previous career in pharmacy is what gave you the thick skin to be prepared for you know, kind of this, this really fast paced, intense environment of, you know, being in exhibitions and art fairs and everything like that. You know, I talk to a lot of artists who come from different backgrounds. And, you know, if you're a a graphic designer or an architect, that really impacts the style of the work that you create. But having another career that teaches you other lessons and prepares you in other ways, besides just literally what you're making is I think hugely valuable. And like you said, there's, you know, no regrets having this circuitous path to becoming an artist. I I think that that ends up preparing you in ways that you wouldn't even expect, which is incredible. You know, as a pharmacist, I became a pharmacist. When I was a teenager, I didn't understand the, the healthcare system. I think that is what disappoints me the most is like our modern health day care system, which I'm fed up with, but I wanted to help people. Like I, I loved the little old people that came in, like geriatrics was my favorite. And I loved, you know, teaching people and I loved healing people. Those were really the fundamental aspects of why I loved being a pharmacist. And I feel like all of those things have transcended into my work. I still teach people. I still heal people. And I forgot what the third one thing was, but I still do that one too. But, you know, the fundamental aspects of who I am 
no matter what job I ever take or do or work or whatever I do, those are the fundamentals of who I am. And I can do that in anything. You know, if I worked, if, if tomorrow somebody gave me a job in a big company that wasn't art or, bi- or wasn't pharmacy, I would still take my teaching and healing and still use that because that's who I am. So, you know, there, there's a tagline that I use on my, it's not a tagline, something I actually said that became a tagline, but it says, you know, for many years, I devoted my life to the art of medicine. And now I've just changed a little bit. And now I've devoted myself to the art of painting, art of healing yeah. through painting. I think that's incredible. That actually leads very nicely into my next question that I have for you, Elisa. This whole idea of regardless of what you're doing, you're still there to help and heal people. So Elisa, when you first open up your website, you have to click on a button that says, I am enough. And then you can answer. This, I think, is beautiful. And making everyone have to acknowledge for themselves that they're enough and before they're able to actually enjoy and explore your art, uh, I think is incredible. So I'd love to hear a little more about your message in your work about this, I am enough, and tying it back to what you were just talking about, about how your art is about healing. So yes, so the website forces you to press the button. And if you choose not to press the button, then you don't come in. And the reason that I force you to do that is because it's very difficult to acknowledge that we are enough. And my work... It's like self-exploration, but I I didn't realize that self-exploration would resonate so strongly with other people. So it's a strong message that I think a lot of us feel. And I think it's so important to say I am enough because so many people don't feel that they are enough. And when I say enough, I mean enough the way you look, the way you act, the way you work, the way you love, the way everything in life. It's, It's so important to acknowledge that we are enough because that is where our confidence stems. And I just feel that with self-confidence, you can literally do anything. And I think what holds a lot of people back is that a lot of people lack confidence. We suffer in our society from a lot of very insecure people who are around, who are not acknowledging their insecurities. And when you acknowledge your insecurities or your imperfections or your flaws or the things you're not good at, that becomes your power it no longer makes you like live your life through fear or defensiveness or holding yourself back. Do you know that I went to pharmacy school? I love pharmacy school, but I really wanted to like be a dermatologist. Oh, and I didn't know that. I'm an expert in der- pharma- like dermatological pharmacy. Like I ran a, a specialty unit and stuff. You know why I didn't go to derm school? Because I didn't think I was good enough to get in. I counted myself out before I even tried. That was my inner brain. But meanwhile, looking back, of course I could have made it as a dermatologist. I made it through a grueling pharmacy school and I I taught, you know, nurses and I taught other medical professions. So it's like, why when I was 18 and it was time to choose, did I count myself out? I counted myself out because I didn't feel good enough. And I think about that and I'm like, well, what other things in my life did I count myself out of? What else did I decide I wasn't good enough for? And when you do the list, I'm sure I can think of many things. I counted myself out of guys that I thought were too good for me. I was not enough for them. Or opportunities that I kind of let slide because, you know what, I'm not going to be good enough for them anyway. Or, you know, the topic of uh, the big topic is, you know, your body and what your body looks like. We don't choose our body. Like you're born into this world in this vessel 
And yet humans are the most terrible at judging each other and hating each other. And for every little thing, we're fighting about things. And we just need to grasp this concept of being good enough. When people tell me that they feel good enough through viewing my artwork, that's the healing that I feel like my work provides to people. I think that is so inspiring. This whole idea of comparing yourself to other people, I think is a little silly. I mean, there's no one out there that's a superhuman. We're all just humans. Like you said, having self-confidence is truly powerful. It's not just, you know, hey, I'm going to feel good about myself now. It actually is going to drive you and propel you to do the things that you do want to achieve. If you don't have that self-confidence, certainly your lack of self-confidence is going to inspire you to fail at what you do. Even if you're fully capable, you will sabotage yourself and you will fail because you're not confident. When you get to that moment where you're up against you know, a challenge, you're going to fail that challenge because you're telling yourself, I can't do this. I'm me. I'm not these other people who do that. The difference is that a confident person will fail, get up, learn from it, move forward and not feel awful about themselves. Confidence is hard work. Like to to be confident and to feel confident, it's not arrogance. Being confident doesn't mean you're better than other people or you're the best at everything. It means whatever you decide to focus on, the things that you love to do and want to do, you're going to do them with this idea that you, you will do them great. And even if you don't do them great, you're going to keep trying to do them great. And if you're not perfect, that's okay. You don't need to be perfect. Perfect it doesn't exist. But there's, I feel like there's so many people in the shadows who live in these like lives of feeling like they're not good enough. And so they're just kept down. And just imagine like how, how much we could flourish if instead of feeling defensive and, and hateful and insecure about things, if you like turn that energy around and allowed it to like flourish positively. There's always a central figure in my art. It's always like a plus size woman. I don't have anything against men. I used to draw men a lot. And right now my brain just wants to explore the female body. I love it. It's something I've always loved to paint and draw. I love skin. Remember I told you dermatology. So I love painting the nude. My my central figure is just a symbol. She's a symbol of that girl that or boy because a lot of men resonate with the work as well but that person that like finally achieved that confidence and she's doing and feeling in that way that like we all dream about feeling like we all like have those thoughts of man if i could if i just was this or if i just did that i could be x y and z one day she's kind of that person that shows you that even though her imperfections are out there she's doing it and so can you like you can also do it like her you know, I draw ordinary moments. I draw ladies watering plants and sleeping and she's perfect in her imperfections and she's confident in showing all those imperfections because there's nothing wrong with the body you were given. You didn't choose it and you don't need to hate yourself for things that are natural. Yeah. Besides the topic of uh, body positivity that's in your work. The other thing I do love is the number of plants you have. I love that. Um, <laughs> but no, no, all, all, all kidding aside. Um, no, all seriously. the plants in my paintings are my plants. <laughs> I, I love that. I try to include plants in my photography as well. Yeah, no, I mean, this whole idea, remember, confidence, it's not perfection. Confidence is being okay with your failures and continuing to persevere until you, you succeed. 
That's incredible. Move on to the next thing. And then, and then part of it is teaching others what you've learned, creating like a community of helping other people who you don't succeed and leave everybody behind you. You succeed and pull everybody up. <laughs> and I, I, I noticed that there's some artists that, you know, they change their, their style a bit. Like they'll follow me for a while. And then like all of a sudden I'll see like plus sides nudes to pop up in like their artwork. But I love that. Cause I'm like, wow, like they're feeling confident and like doing that too. And then that spreads to other people who will see it. And then it's like a, a trickle effect. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, the best form of flattery is, you know, to see similarities in others' work. Alisa, my next question, and I, I want to keep talking about this whole idea of like radical worthiness uh, in your work. So obviously we're talking a lot about the art itself uh, and how you implement confidence, worthiness into your artwork. But this this podcast is the artist business plan. So I'd like to talk a bit about the business side as well. What would you say are the top three ways that you implement this concept of worthiness and confidence in your artist business? I think the first thing that it has to be understood is that you have to be yourself. I think like social media makes us feel that we have to put on like this face of who people want us to be or what our Instagram page has to look like or what our business has to look like. The first business tip is be yourself and the people who want to be with you and like you and want to be around you and buy your stuff want the authentic you because it's going to be a really difficult road to kind of keep up this insincere false facade that you're trying to upkeep because you're trying to be like that other person who is successful. That other person who's successful is being them and you can never be them. So just be yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this whole idea that, you know, when you look at someone else's Instagram page, if you're looking at, I don't know, the the length of their caption or something and, and people start to think, oh, okay, the best captions are super short. Like if it's seven words, that's perfect. But really taking it to the algorithm level, what you're saying about being yourself actually is the best thing to do. If you like normally make really long captions where you're telling people all about yourself, well, that's what your audience expects. So actually, if you as that person who likes to likes to write a lot and you want to have those long captions, having a short caption might actually be disadvantageous for you. So it really just... A, comes down to like on an Instagram algorithm level, be yourself. The second thing would be value who you are and know your worth. So if you're an emerging artist, know that you're an emerging artist and charge your for your work based on the fact that you're emerging and that you have so much room to grow. I see a lot of emerging artists that think that they have to be on the same level as people who have been painting and selling paintings for 10 years and 15 years. It doesn't make sense if you're an emerging artist to have prices that are at that level. And I believe that that comes with like not having self-awareness of who you are. So understand your worth and make sure you charge for it, but also be realistic about where you are. Everybody starts at the bottom and that's okay. It's good to be a beginner you will grow and it'll be exciting for you to like increase your prices, but just be aware of like, I'm, I'm very big into like being modest, be modest about who you are and where you are. And that kind of goes with being yourself. Like don't overinflate your prices because you feel that you need to compete with like artists that are selling at a higher price than you. You will have people who love your art 
and you'll you'll charge a hundred dollars this year, but next year maybe the price will be two hundred, and the next year it'll be three hundred. But that's how you build collectors. Like they will, they want that early piece that's inexpensive, and then they'll see value in it. And next year they they want to pay more. But if you start too high, it's difficult to kind of to keep increasing and getting to that level that you're looking to to be at. So I guess patience. Just have patience and know your worth and you know, don't undercharge yourself. I see a lot of people who undercharge, but just be realistic with your price points. And if you don't know, find a mentor, get somebody who's in the industry, see what they're paying, and then like figure out the formula that makes sense for you. No, and definitely in terms of pricing and just understanding the value of your work and your own worth is hugely important. And I really liked what you said about don't overcharge. Don't expect that at the very beginning, if you're an emerging artist, that you should be charging 20,000 or, or 500,000 or whatever, or whatever, even if a thousand dollars, but it's a, a tiny painting. This is a really big mistake that a lot of artists make when starting out is all they know is going to galleries or museums where the art is extraordinarily expensive. And they think I need to make my art expensive as well. Um, but that's really not a good way to start out. Conversely, as you said, undervaluing your art is also a mistake because you would be surprised. Sometimes that actually discourages sales. You know, someone looks at it and they kind of wonder what's wrong with this. Like, why is it, is it, there's something wrong here. It's either fake or it's, you know, going to disintegrate or or something. It's better to just really hit the nail on the head, get a really good understanding of what you should be pricing your art at and find that Goldilocks happy medium and grow from there. My art mentor um, in high school, Mr. Brown, he told us it's better to incrementally increase your prices than to have to ever go down in price. And he's like, it's better that you start off cheap. Well, I don't like the word cheap, affordable and increase incrementally because an artist that has to discount too much or suddenly their prices go down because they're not selling. I'm not a big fan of constantly seeing things go on sale. Art is an original, special, like handmade thing. It's not like commercial. So when I constantly see people like, oh, 20% off, 25% off, you're not valuing your art by constantly doing that. If you do a couple sales a year or like give special pricing to like your collectors, I think that's really smart. But to start so high and then have to haggle your way, I, I just think start low and go high and always go upward. Yeah. And that's something that over the years with super fun exhibitors, we've had to uh, really strongly encourage them not to do that. I've, I've spoken with galleries and artists who have been in the fair and they're like, oh, what's your price cap? 15,000? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll price this for 15,000. I would take 7,000 for it um, and I'll just discount it down to that if someone wants to. And we tell them- That's no. a bad idea. <laughs> That's, it's a horrible idea. It's you know, at that point, you're just making up numbers, you're slapping something on it. And how is anyone supposed to feel confident about that purchase if, if you're just making up a number? So totally, totally agree with that. Make friends with people on Instagram. You do not know what networks you are walking into when like somebody follows you. Collaborations, I think, are really, really smart, right? It opens you up to other customers and clients and people's eyes on your work that you might not have had. So yeah, so, you know, engaging with the people. I mean, I love my Instagram and I, I, I treat it like 
fun. Like I treat it as something that I look forward to every day. And like, I look forward to talking to the people who are on there. I get a lot of DMs and people sent have private conversations with me about life and their bodies and art and just lots of stuff. But I think that is really what's important on Instagram is creating a community of people who trust you, who want to like look forward to your stuff and who feel that you're like a real person as opposed to this. I guess this goes back to like being authentic. Just go on there, like being yourself and being nice to people because that energy resonates on there and people will like talk about it and other people will come. Like I have, I don't know how many people, like 11,000 people on my page or I don't know, something around that. And that's all natural. Like I didn't buy followers. I didn't, I didn't do anything except be myself on Instagram and the people came. So just like be yourself, be authentic, be sincere, be nice. And if you're not nice and you're nasty and you have a snooty attitude and that's who you are, do it. Be that person because people <laughs> that will want that. Or if you're a jokester, put your jokes on there. Or if you're very serious, like be the person that you are because people want you. Alisa and I were having such a great conversation. We decided to turn this into two episodes. Make sure to tune in for part two of this conversation with Alisa on Thursday. We've been loving your feedback and are so glad that you are finding the podcast helpful. If you have a spare minute, we would love if you reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the Artist Business Plan. It really helps other artists discover the podcast who are also looking to level up their careers. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Artist Business Plan, a weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs brought to you by Superfine Art Fair. Hosted by Superfine CEO Alex Mito and co-founder slash professional artist James Milley, join us and leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas each week for tips, tricks, and value bombs designed to help you thrive and sell more art. For more information on applying to Superfine Art Fair, as well as recordings of this and all of our past podcasts, just visit www.superfine.world. We love to hear what you have to say, so follow us on Instagram at superfineartfair and shoot us a message to let us know you're listening. Looking for a more personal connection or want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Shoot us an email at artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world and we'll get right back to you. That's artistsmakingmoney at superfine.world.